Inspired in part by Sadia Hartman's Lose Your Mother, Lose Your Sister is a meditation on Black feminist thought and diaspora. Treating pop culture as a text, each week we will explore a different topic, film, show, book, event, scandal, etc. A note on creation. As we set out to build this podcast together as an exercise in friendship, cultural criticism, and diasporic exchange, we find strength in remembering that we come from a history of people who have loved and learned from one another across larger distances than this one. In the words of Saidiya Hartman, I too live in the time of slavery, by which I mean I'm living in the future created by it. Situated in this future, Lucia's sister considers how Black people find their way back to one another, interpersonally, artistically, and politically. Hello, Jordan. Hi, Liberty. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm a little tired. Um, just coming off of a cold, but you know, as always, still I rise. And still I rise. No, in nitro. no congestion formed against me shall prosper. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. We're covering yes. you in um the anointing of Benadryl. Period. Oh, Period. Yes. 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 How are you? Um, I'm good. Also a little bit tired. But yeah, I'm happy I'm excited. Yesterday I went to the launch of Languid Hands their journal. Ooh. So Languid Hands is a black queer curation group, well, duo, because there's two people. And they've been doing different exhibitions throughout the years and they just launched their first journal. They're featuring amazing writing from different black queer people. Poetry, research, nonfiction. And yeah, so there were readings at this event. Also, some really good food. They had jerk nice. chicken sausage. Food really roll. always does it. Food yes. really takes they brought it over the, the patties and I yes. said, <laughs> So that was really lovely. Yeah. And I also saw, I'm starting to write reviews for a website called Flow London. And I Ooh. saw Ballet Black at the Barbican. So it's a black ballet dance troupe. And I was never really interested in ballerinas, but they're mm. amazing. The yeah. things that those people can do with their bodies. Like I was just watching in awe. It's like a true athleticism. Um, it's, and it's very they impressive. Look so graceful. That's yeah. the crazy thing. Like your muscles are bulging and yet you look like you're floating. How do you do that? Yeah. No, that is crazy. So, yeah. No, you said flow and I was immediately like, I'm up No, not that flow. <laughs> Sit to me. I was like, I was getting hype. I was like waiting for them to like come in and start singing. You know, like those stands who like pull up in the comments and they're like, you said what? (laughs) (laughs) And then it like they had like one word that's connected to like the person they stand. And they're just like, oh. (laughs) No, no, it's not. They're not in my study right now. They're not going to pop up. No, it's so oh, funny. It's my favorite them. thing. I'm seeing them in April um, in New York. Okay, next month. Very excited. It's my birthday month. It's still going to be airy season. I'm very, very hyped to see them live. No, they feel like my little sister. So, like, I'm, like, very no, they, invested. They, they, I'm very invested. Yeah. Um, so, I'm really hoping that they put on a show, which I know that they will. I mean, I hope the audience is giving good vibes, which I think that they will. I think it's just going to be fun. Mm. In fact, 
Ice Spice, Pink Pantheresque, who else? Flo. I'm like, you're all my little cousins. Yeah. I just want to protect you. Very, very cute. Okay. What media have you been wading through recently? Well, I'm rewatching Yellow Jackets in anticipation of the second season. So that has been fun in a scary way because Yellow Jackets is kind of scary. Um, Yes. um, It's about girls soccer team that on an away game, uh, a flight for an away game, it crashes crashes and they get stuck in the woods for two years, I want to say. And the show is kind of split. The show is kind of split between the time when the girls are in the woods and how they survive. Hint, hint. They eventually have to start chowing down on each other. And then the future where the girls who survived are now like, it's like 25 years later. So they're like in their 30s, 40s now trying to be like regular, normal people. But they're still a little stuck living with and haunted by some of the things that happened to them during that time period. Okay, so when they were stuck in the woods for two years, that was in, like, what, the 80s and 90s? Yes. Okay, because I was like, why couldn't they get out? <laughs> yes. But that makes more sense. Um, yeah, That's so they were sense. stuck out there, and they had to survive. And it was pretty much just a bunch of teenage girls. And one coach dies, one coach survives. And then a, a young boy who is the son of the coach that died who is there. But the rest is all, like, teenage girls. Mm. And so it's interesting because it's also like a lot of controversy around the public. Once the girls are saved, the public is unclear about which girls died on the plane crash and which girls died because the girls ate them. And nobody really wants to go there because they don't want to have to have the conversation around teenage girls eating each other. Mm. And most of the girls are like, oh, no, like we want to move on. Like none of that ever happened. Like people just died, you know, naturally you know, because of the elements. But there is tension and secret understanding amongst the women that they absolutely did have to cut some cuts. Some some <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, actually, but I really, I it's I very watch. good. It's very, very good. One of my new favorite shows for sure. And it gets, it gets okay. gay as well, which is always a fun time. Yeah. So, um, eating each other. Well, not like that, but <laughs> <laughs> um, at least, no, I think I think the gay couple survives, but we will see. We will see. But there is there is a Black lesbian on the show who's married to another Black woman. So that's that's a perk. Um, the and crumbs and the, her- <laughs> the, <Yeah. Barcelona. laughs> the scraps. <laughs> There's the scraps. And so that's really nice. And she's a little crazy. So it's also fun to see her development as a character as you kind of start to understand that she has some things going on psychologically that you can't, that most people can't really understand or see. Uh, because of what she survived mm. yeah and even her wife doesn't completely understand because she wasn't there yeah wow. i wasn't expecting all that <laughs> yes but it's a very good show wow. um i know i i generally like shows like this like survival shows so i really like to just see how a lot of like social dynamics either dissolve or get reinforced in emergency situations um mm. so that's what i think is really interesting to me about the show okay I've been watching completely different energy, Abbott Elementary, <laughs> because <laughs> because it's um the second season just aired mm-hmm. in the UK. It's now available on Disney Plus, which owns Hulu. Oh, Hulu okay. is available in the in the UK. So all of the R-rated stuff that's on Hulu is on Disney Plus, which I find really mm-hmm. funny. That is um, funny. <laughs> yeah. And so I because 
you know, if I spice is my little cousin, Quinton Brunson is my big cousin. And yeah. I didn't want to do my big cousin dirty by illegally streaming <laughs> the show. So I waited. Like the good Christian raised girl I am, I waited. <laughs> and now I get to enjoy um all of the I think has this has season two ended yet? Uh I don't think it has because I just caught up and the most recent episode feels like it felt it felt like there has to be at least one more episode to close things out. <laughs> mm. um, although, I mean, it could be last episode, but I feel like there's probably at least going to be one or two more. Okay, great. Because I can watch like most of the season now and binge. Mm-hmm. So yes. I'm on I, the Halloween It's such a episode. good show to binge. Yes. And it also feels like a show that I should have been binging. That should be available yeah. to binge. Like already yeah. feels like there should be like five seasons of it. But yes, I just got to the Halloween episode. Mm-hmm. Hilarious. <laughs> I'm with everyone, as in it is my comfort show. It's lovely because otherwise I do be watching stressful stuff. I've been I've been really struggling to find shows. Yeah. That's the other thing. Like I've watched Real House of Potomac, but that's just ended. Yes. I mean, and that show is messy. painful to watch. No, but it's painful now. It's, it's painful, painful now. It wasn't before, it's painful. but it's, yeah. yeah, I mean, it used to be more, it used to be like a kind of pain you could get pleasure from, but now it's just straight, it's just straight uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah, it's very chaotic. Have you seen all of the episodes? Yes, I'm still getting through the reunion, though. Have you seen the colorism discussion? Yes, I mean, I've heard a lot about it and I've seen clips discussion. I mean, I kind of feel like the whole series is a colorism crash course because from the very beginning of the show it has been like it's been there I mean I kind of feel like to me it feels kind of late for them to try to do the conversation now because it's so embedded in the show like in terms of like the original cast in terms of the kinds of like dynamics between the women even the original beef between like Giselle and Katie was kind of all about this tension around their particular ideas around blackness particularly Giselle's feeling like she needed to get in Katie's face about it which was very weird that whole thing was very strange but honestly I mean I feel like the situation with Monique definitely had an undercurrent um and Monique is not even like dark skin like like the like the women who come later like Wendy and Candace are much darker than Monique but I think that even the way that Giselle was with Monique felt like it had some of that in there because it was just like Giselle could not stand her. I wish Monique had tugged on Giselle's wig instead of Candace's, but at the time, I did feel like Candace deserved it. So, um, yeah, um, I kind of wish that Monique had gotten to stay longer so she could have tugged a couple more. <laughs> um, I still feel like she was unfairly taken off the show. But again, perhaps this is like she and I being on that Aries Libra axis. I feel like there are moments where you need to get active, but everybody doesn't want that. And the girls wanted to act super bougie. And so they were like, oh, like there's no space for, for violence, but they're very violent to each other all the time. So yeah, they're very violent I don't know. Yeah. And far more destructive than what Monique did. But I think the Royal Housewives, it's interesting that the Royal Housewives, they draw the line at physical violence. Because, like, mm-hmm. on other reality TV shows, they encourage it. Yeah. But, yeah, it's meant to be a classy party. I think it's a, I think it's a class performance yeah, thing to me. Yes, I think they're yeah. just trying to distinguish themselves. Because, because honestly, they can barely distinguish themselves financially. Because when you actually pay attention, they don't actually seem to have that much money. 
Mm. Um, which is another reason why I think they didn't like Monique because Monique actually had a little money. <laughs> like yeah. she would have been the richest of them if she had stayed on the cast because like Giselle's a divorcee. Any money, like other, like her kids are also getting older. So it's not like she's making much in child support anymore. Giselle does some work also. Yeah. I mean, well, now, now she has her whole, like, you know, the money that whatever she's making from the show and from things associated with the show. But ultimately, like, if she doesn't keep doing the show, where would she get money from? And that's why she's washed up, tired, and evil. Yeah. I mean, personally, I think they should have taken Robin off the show a long time ago. Because I think she doesn't really have a plot other than just constantly being humiliated and by her her situation. I think it's almost cruel to have her on the show anymore. You Um, say put her out of misery. Put her out. Like, I just feel like we should be, I feel uncomfortable watching sometimes. I'm just like, like, when I tell you, like, Juan is so dirty to that woman. And what pisses me off about Robin, one, because she's a terrible representation of Aries, but very much in line with my Aries bird theory. But oh, she's two, Aries. Yes. But I also feel like she is, she has all this heat for everybody but the person who disrespects her the most. And I just feel like that's so lame. Like, that's really just how I feel about it. I feel like she's lame. And I feel like the way that she lets Giselle put batteries in her back to fight people that she don't actually have any issue with, I think is stupid. Also, Robin is mad aggressive. She's a thug. Because she she's is. always trying to get up in people's face. She always is. Yelling. And my thing is like, I wish she would take that warrior spirit and get that <sighs> demon out of her home. I wish that's what she would do. I wish she would run up on him. But instead, she she wants to get all up in the other girl's face and act like she wants to tussle. And I'm just like, girl. We know you can't do that. I was like, these little battles, but you won't go to war. No. Oh, dear. We're yes. From one light skin to another. <laughs> <laughs> and talk about a viral clip that was circulated around Twitter last month where Dr. Angela Y. Davis, let me use her full title, was on Finding Your Roots with Henry Louis Gates Jr., which is a genealogy show. We're going to talk more about what the show does in a bit. But basically, she was finding out her lineage, and she found out that one of her ancestors was on the Mayflower. And that's how one of her... I'm not going to say ancestors, I'm going to say forefathers... Because white people don't have ancestors as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) (laughs) Came to America from the Mayflower. And Twitter blew up. Some people were like, she should have been like Ben Affleck and refused to let this air. Mm -hmm. This is so damaging. Some people, some annoying conservatives were like, oh, she can't claim reparations now. She owes reparations because... She has slave owner ancestors, extremely ignorant and ahistorical. We're going to get into that. And then there were people like me in my position who were like, I understand the tragic irony of the situation, but this also can be because I'm British. And so the main flower doesn't mean the same to me. But I didn't find it shocking because I think that just reifies Angela Davis's politics because the only way that Angela Davis as a Black woman could have relations to the Mayflower is through violence. While her positionality as a Black woman who grew up in Alabama, Mm -hmm. in a neighborhood 
that was nicknamed Dynamite Hill because white supremacists were bombing it all the time. For her to be related to someone who came on the Mayflower, violence has occurred at some point in her lineage, whether it's through slavery, like how a lot of people assumed, or elsewhere. In its afterlife, yeah. In its afterlife, yes. So I just thought that her being descendant of the Mayflower does not negate or undermine any of her politics, but in fact proves why it's necessary. Yeah. But yeah, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think to me was what was interesting because like online, what went viral was a very small clip of the entire Mm. um, episode. I think what was interesting to me was how much was being read off of uh, Davis's response and like our kind of thoughts around this question of of blackness and affect um in the face of of history and in the face of like these kind of genealogical scenes of terror I guess you would call them and so that to me was really interesting in terms of what is supposedly the proper response both like politically socially personally for Davis to have and I also was um, I think once I actually saw the episode, I think what stood out to me was also this, the difference between the kind of conversation you can have once you get a real sense of how little information Davis had about her family, period, right? And like how I think the overall kind of stakes of the genealogy work that she was getting done was even higher for her than I think even like the average like black person who is raised by their say like biological parents right like in their in their family of birth because Angela didn't even know her grandparents um so like there's an extent to which her like her family her sense of her family history was like very abbreviated and I think that that kind of got lost in the Twitter conversation as well because she has like a very exaggerated example of like how black people's kinship ties are like heavily fractured. And so I think, I think that's what stood out to me a lot too. I also think that perhaps part of what was going on as well was just that increasingly there have been a lot of critiques, right, of the shifts and evolutions in Davis's politics, which I think are valid critiques to be made. Um, And I think that some of that I think got written into her response in particular kinds of ways as well, because I think I think there was an assumption that the kind of strands of liberalism, I guess, that people feel like she's fallen into politically at times, that her response was indicative of those kinds of stances. I I mean, I understand where that kind of read would come from, but I also I also wonder if there is a broader conversation to be had about the extent to which most Black people actually are given the space to fully, like, reckon with the reality of, like, who we are, which is why I think sometimes it's also a thing of Black people, like, we're not, we're not who we think we are, right? Like, sometimes, like, there is this kind of, like, tension that I think we all live with or are haunted by to some extent, that there's an aspect of, like, our historical origin that is, like, just as violent. The way that we become Black is just violent. It's just violence, mm. like produces it. And I think, I think there's no way to really like avoid that. But I think that oftentimes we seek out forms of relief through leaning into nationality, through leaning into culture, to art and all these other things to kind of avoid having to like deal with that complete abject kind of condition that that creates. And so I think that- terror. Yeah. And I think I think sometimes politics does that for us, too, where like we get caught up in rights based conversations when like there's 
I think like a deeply metaphysical, right? Like ontological, genealogical, like thing that like we can't actually put a name to that I think people have to confront in particular kinds of ways in those kinds of moments, right? Where you're kind of faced with the literal ledger of of your existence um, or what can be or what kind of traces of, of Black existence can be provided through a kind of archival mode. But to me, I think if anything, like even if we were to critique the surprise of it all, I think we have to acknowledge that a lot of that surprise comes out of the way that I think Black people are kind of constantly lying to each other and ourselves about the reality of the situation, which I don't really think is something that I would hold Davis to task for solely. <laughs> I think that we are very invested in in creating an idea of ourselves that is not that is not shaped by that legacy of violence, but almost to an extent where I think we oftentimes just try to disavow it altogether and just lie and become really agitated by any kind of acknowledgement of that past, which I think we also see in the whole no more slavery movies thing when like there actually aren't that many slavery movies. <laughs> yeah. There really aren't. <laughs> yeah, there's so much shame around, yeah, the history and ancestry of slavery. Which is the same because that completely dishonors our slave ancestors. What I want to ask you is, would you go on finding your roots? And how much do you know about your own ancestry? Yeah. I don't think I would go on finding your roots. Because of Henry <sighs> Louis Gates? <laughs> <laughs> That's the only reason I wouldn't. <laughs> I feel like I would... I think there's a part of me that would always be interested in what could be uncovered by a team of genealogists and archivists who had the amount of resources that they seem to have on the show. Like, I think they're able to uncover a lot more than probably the average person is able to figure out on their own. So on one hand, I would appreciate having someone with that access and that capacity for like diligence to do that work for my family. I also think that I don't think I would necessarily want that to be a public thing. Like, I don't think I would want it to be aired on television. And I think I have questions about the entertainment of it all. And like, to what extent the show understands itself to be entertaining um, is something that I have questions about. But in terms of what I know about my family's lineage, it's kind of different on each side. On my mother's side, they migrated from the Carolinas to New York several generations ago. And so my family has been in New York for a very long time on that side. We know that a significant portion of them were Gullah and were from the Sea Islands, but nobody living now still like speaks Gullah or has any direct ties like ever lived on the islands. So for the most part, that side of the family, I think, has somewhat of a, a blended kind of approach as far as like having some of these Southern Gullah inflections, but also being heavily influenced by New York's culture um, and the cultures that they encountered. Because most of them, when they moved up north, took jobs working for Jewish and Italian families. So eventually had you know, implications in terms of relatives having children with people from, from those different cultures, but also in terms of just the family culture, like it's very common for like my family gatherings to have both what would be considered like Southern cuisine and like baked ziti and like stuffed shells um, and like locks, like stuff like that is like very You're common. You're about Italian? <laughs> I am <Aww>. not. <laughs> I am not. I am not. But I do think that Black people take to Italian culture a little too easily. <laughs> 
I was, I was gonna say you Italian ex. You <laughs> um, no, me me and Jabuki. <laughs> yeah, you, you Jabuki and Beyonce. That, yes, <laughs> that's um, But no, I mean I'm very anti-Italian, just like in solidarity with my East African sibs. I stand on that, but that is kind of the history of my family in terms of them being in New York and the kind of families they worked with were primarily white Italians, white Jewish people. And so that was kind of, that had the family, but we don't have a lot of history beyond or like history of like what they were doing in the Sea Islands. Um, Obviously we know that there was plantation labor occurring on the Sea Islands, but I don't know like plantation names or anything like that. And I don't have any family names beyond a certain point. But we're finding some more things out because my great grandma recently passed and we went to the plot that the family has at the cemetery in New York is actually like in the colored section of the cemetery. So so essentially the whole family that lived in New York and died in New York were all buried in the same place. So there is relative like continuity there in terms of tracing things back. But I think the Southern part of that family history is kind of lost to me personally, but there may be people who know more. My dad's side is a little easier because he's from Virginia and they've been in Virginia for a really long time. He and his sister are like, I think the first batch of them to like actually leave that part of Virginia and like have been raised in DC and Maryland. Yeah. So like I, we know like what plantation his family was on and everything. So it's, it's very different. What about you? That's amazing that you actually able to trace it back we've had somebody who was able to do that work so my family's from Jamaica and they moved to the United Kingdom in the 60s and apart from the immigration to London the Midlands and the UK and Florida and also Canada as far as I know they spent most of their time in Jamaica I only can trace my family back to my great-grandparents and this is the time I get to tell people that um, <clears throat> my great grandfather on my mother's side was seven feet tall, <gasps> and his wife was under five foot. What? So we had, <laughs> and they had thirteen kids. So <laughs> you had Shaquille O'Neal and Quinta Brunson <laughs> in a union. The gene pool's crazy. That is like what? Yeah, that's like. How do, they even, how do they even communicate? Like huh? How do you even communicate with a height difference that's significant? I don't know, but they did. <laughs> and they did it very well. <laughs> My family is also from the countryside in Jamaica. So I actually do really want to trace my lineage. And that's the reason I would go and find in your roots so that someone else would do the hard part. Yeah. <laughs> hard Maybe I can like pick up after where they left off because Jamaica already doesn't have a lot of written public records. Like even like they didn't have censuses in the 19th century. I think only like one parish in one particular year. So there's very, very limited information on people. So it's a difficult task, but I have promised, I've actually promised one of my aunties that I would do a family tree. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I think what I will do is try and trace it back as far as I can. And then when I eventually inevitably get stuck, I'm going to go um, with ways and try and find where everyone ended up. Because yeah, as I said, my grandma is one of 13. Mm. And on my dad's side, granddad was one of 10. Yeah. 
So there's a lot of people to, <laughs> to yeah. look out. I mean, that's the one busy. like benefit of relatively big families is you tend to have people around long enough to to be able to give you insight into into all that stuff. So that does that does help if there's a lot of people to talk to. Let's get into this episode. But before we do that, we're going to issue a trigger warning because we will be talking about sexual assault and rape as it pertains to slavery and that will feature a large part of our discussion so if you don't want to engage with that discussion don't worry we have loads of other episodes for you to check out and I suggest that you go listen to those now all right so yes Finding Your Roots is an American TV show where an archival and genealogical research team uncovers the lineages of public figures who appear as guests on the program Presented by literary critic and historian and public enemy number one, in my opinion, Henry Louis <laughs> Gates Jr. <laughs> um, Finding Your Roots uses DNA analysis and public documents to build a family tree for celebrity guests of the likes of Don Cheadle, Oprah Winfrey, Ben Affleck, who famously tried to pull the episode or at least edit the episode <laughs> because they found out that he's a descendant of slave owners and he didn't want that to be public knowledge. And Anderson Cooper, who is a G because when he found out that his overseer ancestors was killed by a slave, he was like, they deserve it. And didn't ask it to be cut out. And asked no follow-up questions. And I was like, that's it. Okay. Dr. Angela Y. Davis is a prolific Marxist academic, abolitionist, and civil rights activist. She rose to prominence in the 1970s when she was imprisoned for allegedly supplying guns to a murderous arms takeover of a courtroom. After a worldwide campaign for her release, Davis continued to advocate for racial justice and communism on the global stage. She teaches at University of California, Santa Cruz, and has written important contributions to Black studies, feminism, and prison abolition, such as Women, Race, and Class, and Are Prisons Obsolete? So in this episode of Finding Your Roots with Angela Davis, she didn't know the identities of her grandfathers on both sides because Mm -hmm. there were white men who had children with black women and for various reasons were kept out of the picture. Her mother was in the foster care system, so she didn't know who her parents were. We find out that her white father was a senator and a businessman, a respected person in the community, and he impregnated a Black woman who we do not know the identity of. Mm-hmm. And their child, Andrew Davis's mother, was put into foster care. We trace his lineage further back and find a forefather who served in the Revolutionary War and owned slaves. Mm-hmm. And then I think, is it through his lineage that we have the Mayflower? I think so. Yeah. I think it was him. Yes. And then on the other side... It was unclear who Angela Davis's father's father was throughout his life. Turns out that he was the white neighbor, which is this is this is really, really yeah. this whole thing scandalous. Turns out that Angela Davis's grandfather lived next to her father for his entire life. We think that the father must have known because whenever Angela Davis tried to ask him about it, he didn't want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And then I think on the dad's black side, we find out that one of Angela Davis's ancestors actually filed a complaint 
against a planter who held this ancestor's nephews as indentured mm. slaves. Yeah. Um, and so he fought in the courts to liberate his nephews who were orphans. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, family separation and like the state are also a really big part of Davis's family history, which I think was something that stood out to me a lot. Like that even beyond just the questions around the grandparents that like the example you provide with the nephews, right? Like just the way that people were, I mean, in some ways, I mean, it's also just indicative of what we know about slavery and its afterlife in general, in terms of what it means for Black people to be subject to natal alienation in numerous ways. And I think that to me, I think that's what came out the most in terms of her episode was just the way that she constantly was hit with these kinds of reminders that her family lineage was kind of really born of this like constant fracturing, relocating and like isolating of different people. And that white men, I mean, this is why Spillers calls white men like, you know, the original absent fathers in Black history. Yeah. Because, because quite literally, like her ancestry is just like full of these like examples of white men fathering, I guess if you fathering, right, in a particular sense, children with these Black women. And then oftentimes it's unclear to me to what extent these white men had a hand in the decisions to remove the children from their mothers. Right. Like I'm wondering what the senator, for example, if part of the cover for him was to have the child not actually be with Angela's grandmother. Yeah. That if it was easier to hide if the baby was removed entirely. And so that's something that I wonder about, too, because we don't actually get a sense of whether or not that was a decision that the grandmother chose. And obviously no one's making choices in a vacuum. So even if she did choose it, it would still have been a direct byproduct of the conditions under which she was living. But I think it is a, a real kind of source of tension there because we don't actually know why her mom ended up in foster care and had no ties to her mother going forward. I found the entire episode deeply sad, like right off on the bat because of the unknown identity of Angela Davis's paternal grandmother, the fact that they can't even find this woman. And I think the power relations between this unknown Black woman mm-hmm. and this man who was a senator who also had his own white family and had, I think, six kids mm-hmm. on the white side. So six kids alone on the white side. We don't know how many yeah, Black I mean, children he I mean, fathered. When you think about it, I mean, it's quite possible that Angela also has aunts and cousins that she doesn't know of that this man could have had with other black women throughout Alabama right like we don't have any way of knowing yeah I'm very concerned and disturbed about the thought of this black woman she could even be a girl Kelly Holloway wrote the best piece I could find about Mm -hmm. Angela Davis's episode on finding your root and yeah she mentions the possibility that because of these power relations Mm -hmm. Angela Davis's grandmother could have been a girl. I mean, and also what the distinction between girl and woman even meant for Black people <laughs> at that in time is also the... like, I mean, it's very flimsy. I mean, it's arguably flimsy today. So like, it's very flimsy at this time as well in terms of what those kinds of age markers would have meant, especially in the face of white power. None of that would have necessarily protected anyone I mean, I think perhaps like the theory of the grandmother having been a child would maybe also give some kind of explanation for the lack of records, though. Yes. Yeah. And the foster care placement. Yeah. And also want to notice that Angela Davis's mother, Sally, didn't even have a birth certificate. 
So I do think the fact that this black child is also in the foster care system without a birth certificate is definitely still in the afterlife, the mm-hmm. legacy of slavery. Yeah. I mean, I think I think we have to be very careful because I think a lot of comments were being made when it first came up. Everybody was like, oh, well, like, obviously, this is a direct representation of like sexual violence during slavery. And then once people found out about the whole quote unquote affair, there was this kind of move to like, oh, well, it wasn't it wasn't sexual violence. It wasn't rape. Right. Was the was the narrative. But I think that we I think we should be very careful not to speak with so much certainty about the nature of these relations, because I think that when we're talking about the afterlife of slavery, like it's not, it's not something we say casually. And I think yeah. that we need to be very clear about the fact that people were making decisions and not making decisions under a, a host of conditions. I think the assumption that just because something occurred after slavery means that it was not born of slavery relations is a misstep, in my opinion. And I think that maybe people do that because it makes them feel more comfortable to be like, oh, like we stopped the clock here and then like everything is just like fair game. But it's just not true. In general, I think we should be cautious about letting other people tell us when slavery ended. Yes. Callie Holloway picked out this great quote from Angela Davis herself in a book, Women, Race and Class. So, quote, the sexual abuse of Black women had routinely suffered during the area of slavery was not arrested by the advent of emancipation. As a matter of fact, it was still true that coloured women were looked upon as legitimate prey of white men. And if they resisted white men's sexual attacks, they were frequently thrown into prison to be further victimised by a system that was a return to another form of slavery. From reconstruction to the present, black women have been victims of extortion on the job compelled to choose between sexual submission and absolute poverty for themselves and their families. Yes. I mean, and we also wanted to think a little bit with Davis's essay, Reflections on the Black Woman's Role in the Community of Slaves, because I think sometimes we forget that Davis, despite the fact that she comes to popularity in the 70s, is engaging very much with the politics at that time, was also thinking about slavery in her work. She writes in in that essay that, quote, we, the Black women of today, must accept the full weight of a legacy wrought in blood by our mothers in chains. And this is something I was thinking about a lot in terms of this question of how does Angela Davis arrive to finding your roots, right? Like what information? We know that there's a lot that she didn't know about her family in particular, but there's a lot that she does understand about slavery and about the conditions of Black women's lives during and after the non-event of emancipation, right? And so I think there is an extent to which, in some ways, what we're seeing is the kind of actual collision that occurs between personal history and a broader kind of understanding of, of history. It's one thing to understand history on the page and to understand history in terms of how it's operating in a kind of communal political discourse. But to understand exactly where you fit into that, I think, is something that a lot of people have varying degrees of familiarity with. Everybody doesn't actually know exactly where they fit into that story, even if they know that they were touched by it. This is where I'm going to expand upon my beef with Henry Louis Gates Jr. So I'm like, I'm glad you brought that up because Mm -hmm. this man seems to be giddy at any revelation of Angela Davis's ancestors without ever thinking about the violence that undergirds any of it. So he talks about, oh, your white grandfather, the senator, was a community man. 
And Angela Davis immediately is like, was he a part of the Ku Klux Klan or? <laughs> no, because that's what because like she's asking the real questions because that's what yes. community means for yes. whiteness. Like that's what community means. So like, like he's, I don't know. There's like an extent to which the show feels like a horror miniseries, to be honest for me. It is. Because, and that's why I said before, like I really struggle with the question of like what entertainment quality it has. And the extent to which it requires this kind of complete omission of violence in order to situate itself as a show that is thinking about genealogy in ways that aren't a threat to the broader order. And I think part of it is the fact that like that he doesn't really talk about violence, not enough anyway, right? Like we get these kind of moments like the Anderson Cooper moment, right? Where it's like, oh, your your overseer ancestor got hit upside the head with a hoe. <laughs> <laughs> I think with the Black guests who come on, I think there is such a strong desire to do this, what I kind of call like 1619ification. <laughs> I think there's this desire to kind of historicize them as like the perfectors of the nation in a particular kind of way, which I think is grotesque. I think it demonstrates to me over and over again, like the degree to which we do not have solidarity with the slave in the way that we talk about, about this history. And I think you see it in, I mean, I think you brought up or we talked about it a little bit before we started the episode, but the the other guest on the yes, episode. I want to talk about um, that. I want to talk about yeah. that. Because it becomes increasingly absurd how committed Gates is to this idea of like the American story and patriotism. What me and Jordan are referring to is there's another guest on the episode called Jay Jackson. He is a statesman and he works in the Obama administration, probably works in the Biden administration too. And his great, 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 great grandmother was a slave and his grandfather of that time was her owner. And they had 10 children together while the slave owner father had his own white family. He put them on two separate farms. And when Henry Gates reveals this to, no, not Jackson, Johnson, Johnson is clearly disturbed, mm-hmm. clearly sad and taken aback. And Gates has the audacity to ask, what do you think the relationship was like between them? Can you fall in love with someone who owns you? What kind of question? I just just like... And they also refer to them as an unusual couple. Which is also weird to me because like, there's like two ways, right, that you can come at that kind of question, right? One is one which significantly critiques the virtue of love in and of itself as a gesture under these circumstances to say that like, that if love can persist under these conditions, then love is not a liberatory thing in and of itself, which is an argument we could make, but not the argument he's trying to make, Um, right? Or you can go in this other direction where it's kind of like, okay, one, like, what exactly do you want him to say (laughs) in response to the question? Um, But also, like, what is the purpose behind saying that? Because the, the the unusual couple, for me, the problem with that statement isn't just the kind of way in which it comes off a little bit too casual for me, but also the extent to which it tries to sensationalize what is actually like a normative violent order, right? In fact, if we if we imagine the slave and the master to be a couple of any kind, it is certainly not an unusual couple, 
is a common coupling, right? That's a very common coupling if we understand what slavery is, right? That the slave is always coupled to the master, regardless of gender, regardless of sexual violence, regardless, the slave is always coupled to the master. So in what way is it unusual? Like I think he's so invested in pulling out these stories to do some kind of sensational work to gesture at, like, yeah, to be like, oh, like, see, like, these are outliers. And I think this is what it means to me when I say like, that he's not willing to deal with violence. Because I think that if you're willing to deal with violence, then there is nothing unusual about that coupling. Yes. And my problem with him is that he never names right. He never names yeah. sexual assault, completely minimalizing the pain that um, these slaves went through. In a way, dehumanizing them, even though he's trying to ascribe like, love to them and superimpose that kind of humanity on, well... Yeah. That sanitized version of humanity yeah. onto them, completely ignoring their lived experience and also ignoring the experience that his own guests are going through. Because even though these people are clearly distressed, Angela Davis is like close to tears. Mm-hmm. Every time Gates asks Johnson these egregious questions, he like kind of refrains from answering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's like, I don't know. He was like, I don't know if it's that or I I would put it this way. He's clearly not on the train that Gates is trying to go on. He completely ignores it. He's just like giddy, excited, enthusiastic about trying to write the history of slavery into the American nationalist story without thinking about how the only reason we have an American nationalist story is because of the pain of slavery and the violence of slavery. This is why I keep going back to the entertainment question, because it really is... I think it really does, to me, create a sense of the parameters and the limits of what the show can do, like both Mm -hmm. in terms of the fact that I think like to the point that you're making, it's a question also of like the limits of the human or of like humanism in general for thinking Mm -hmm. about Blackness and thinking about slavery, but also like the ways in which like we see those limits particularly indexed through like the limits of what genealogy can do as well right because it's also a question of like what does it mean to be a human with a trace of one's existence and there are some people who do not have a trace right for for particular reasons and there are particular violences that do not have a trace which is why for me I think I also kind of struggle at times with the way that the way that the biological discourse becomes the primary mode that we use for thinking about the legacy of sexual violence under slavery. I think that certainly genealogically, we have been terrorized and there is a way to see that there is evidence of that. I don't think genealogy is the only or even the primary register we should be thinking about that question on because we have to assume that the vast majority of violence did not produce a biological result. Yeah. of any kind, like anything that could be traced on a biological level, or at least not in the sites we're looking for, which is normally reproductive, right? Like certainly there could be forms of stress or psychological impact that we're also not looking at as as a, as a ge- generational kind of legacy. But I think, I don't know, I really struggle with it. I mean, and this is something I, I also think comes into play in terms of how we think about Blackness and colorism and like how that fits into this broader conversation around about Blackness and slavery as an ancestral kind of legacy. Because I think that there were a lot of people who were saying things like, oh, why, like, why was Davis surprised? Look at her. And that was like, I kind of struggled with the logic there. Because on one hand, I do 
I completely understand what they mean because I think we've all inherited that kind of logical template, right? For like thinking of the light-skinned Black subject as the primary representative of this kind of physical embodied legacy of racial violence that occurs on this kind of biological genealogical track. But I actually really have a problem with it, both to the extent that I think at times it elides the ways in which light-skinnedness can be preserved amongst Black people without an active white participant, but also the extent to which I think it attempts to reduce the kind of marking of sexual violence on Black subjects to skin tone, which I think is just false. I mean, and this is something that I also took issue with in a piece that came out a couple years back called You Want a Confederate Monument, My Body is a Confederate Monument by Carolyn Randall Williams, which was basically all about the kind of Confederate monument debate. And Williams was trying to make this argument that like the voices that weren't being listened to were Black descendants of Confederate soldiers. Um, And she kind of makes this argument that the proof or reference point for the way in which she is tethered to the Confederacy is her, her words, her quote, Mm -hmm. rape colored skin. And I recall when I read the piece wanting to fight several people. By the way, it opens with that line. Yes. (laughs) Um, I wanted to fight several people, both the editors at the New York Times who allowed it to be published and everyone involved in the formation of the author's perspective (laughs) on this issue. Because in my opinion, if we're going to be serious about the legacy of slavery, then like all Black skin is quote unquote rape colored skin. We are all the direct product, um, whether or not there is a genealogical trace or not, whether or not we understand our skin tone to be more similar or more different from white people's. I also think it's weird because I also think sometimes it essentializes light skin in Black people as always a direct product of white or like European or non-African ancestry, even though there are Black people of lighter shades without European ancestry. So I think to me, it gets a little essential at times. But my primary concern with it is that I think it also is just like very, very anti-Black to presume that light skin is the most legible text (laughs) that we can look at for, for for looking at like violence on Black people. I think it's very disturbing that people say things like that. I also think it undermines the point to use biology as the primary basis for that argument, in my opinion. I think Black people, regardless of whether or not we have direct ties to Confederate soldiers, can say, take them fucking monuments down. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that I need to prove that I'm Robert E. Lee's, you know, illegitimate Negro descendant to make that point. And I think it's really not only lame, but also really like indicative of how anti-Black these kind of discourses of proof and ancestry really are, because I think they all hinge on this discourse of legitimacy that is very disturbing. And I don't think we have anything to prove. Yeah. And I think it also ignores that slave owners raping their slaves was not the only form of sexual violence on the plantation. That part. Reading. That part. Even those of us who have a larger allotment of what would be considered African ancestry are not out of that conversation. Yeah. Because you're talking about like mass breeding, literally like on a scale that like we can't even completely wrap our heads around. So like, I just feel like people aren't, they aren't being serious. And <laughs> that's just where I feel. It's just very unserious. I felt like the way Gates handled the episode was unserious. I think the way that we talk about slavery is unserious. 
And I just really struggle with the extent to which we talk with so much certainty about things that we actually don't know. Like there's actually so much we don't know. Mm. Before we begin to wrap the episode up, I want to step outside of the US a little bit Mm -hmm. and think about other ways that myths about race are used for nation building in ways that obscures the sexual violence of slavery that nation building depends on. So there's an idea of like racial purity in the US in like being able to trace your ancestry back to the Mayflower. The Mayflower is a symbol used by white supremacists to suggest racial purity. But elsewhere in the Americas, that isn't the case. They're anti-Black through trying to imagine a nation that is multiracial and harmonious. The way that they try to construct this mestizo society, I'm using the word mestizo because that's, Mm -hmm. even though it's Spanish, because that's the best word I can think of for it. The only way they can construct this mestizo society is by getting rid of Black people. Mm -hmm. Ignoring the plight and suffering of Black people through their subjugation by other races. Strong example of this is the Jamaican national motto, which is out of many, one people. Now, when I was a wee child and I heard of this motto, I thought it meant all of the different African tribes that came to Jamaica and became slaves and became one people, Jamaica. But it's actually a way to justify there being white and non-Black races in positions of power while there's a Black underclass. So Walter Rodney, in his book, The Groundings of My Brothers, states that what the government are afraid of is the question of colour. They're afraid of that tremendous historical experience of the degradation of the Black man being brought to the fore. They do not want anybody to challenge their myth about us of many one people and a harmonious multiracial society. I mean, this is all like really a really good point too, because I think this, I think we see how this conversation comes up a lot in terms of the ways that Generally, we understand that the way the U.S. generally talks about race is slightly different in very, you know, essential ways from the ways that other countries have negotiated their racial discourses. But I think the through line is really this anti-Blackness because anti-Blackness is the fulcrum of of all of this organizing, right? That like we might see countries and cultures where there are different castas, right? There are different different ways and terms that we might refer to people who have this complexion, but this hair type or this hair type and that complexion, right? But the bottom line is that the standard for what anti-Blackness must disavow persists, right? That whether or not these people are identified as Black or Negra in a particular context, it is still understood that being darker is undesirable, that having a certain hair type is undesirable, that identifying with one's Blackness is detrimental to one's social mobility more often than not, right? And so I think that while there obviously are these kinds of distinctions in terms of how these individual nations form, anti-Blackness is still like the seed bed of everything, right? That it still is shaping so much of how even countries that imagine themselves to be more quote-unquote inclusive than the U.S. or even the U.K., right? Um, that understand themselves yeah, to, you know, have embraced, you know, you know, mm-hmm. always the con- <laughs> that their investment, right, in like, to your point to like mestizaje or like metisage, right, like that their investment in these kinds of ideas of a multiracial populace still are very invested in the production of a particular aesthetic, 
right, in terms of what that multiracial populace can look like. For me, always what's very interesting in terms of how we have these conversations around ancestry and mixture is the extent to which we don't really know what to do with forms of quote unquote mixture that don't produce the image we want them to produce, both in terms of narratively, how people relate to them. Like we don't know how to deal with stories in which someone understands themselves to have this kind of colonial encounter in their ancestry and not embrace it, right? Like we're very uncomfortable with people who refuse to embrace that particular legacy. But I think we're also very, we don't really have any capacity oftentimes to deal with the ways that terms like mixed race are ultimately not really historically that much about actual racial mixture, right? That more often than not, they're actually about producing a a more like structured sense of both where people's parents are socially categorized, right? And keeping track of interracial unions in particular Mm. kinds of ways, but that they also oftentimes are terms that get used to talk more about how people look than where people come from. Mm. Right. And I think you see this all the time with oftentimes when someone says that a person looks mixed, we have an image that comes into our heads. Right. And it's not necessarily it's less about like someone could. I mean, because I think you see this all happen sometimes where like if a darker skinned black person says that they are mixed or have, quote unquote, non-black ancestry, Mm -hmm. that generally there is a tendency to consider that person like a joke. People tend to feel like that person is in denial, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's like there's like an old like clip, I forget from what show it was, but like Golden from from Girlfriends, yeah. the actress who plays Maya. There's a clip where she's talking to this other black woman who is like also like a brown, like dark skinned black woman. I mean, they're talking and she's like, you know, my sister, right? And the other black girl is like, oh, I'm mixed. And the girl's like, mixed with what? Because the girl is darker, right? But what's very interesting to me is is like the extent to which we think about mixedness, like we're actually talking about a look, right? We're not actually talking about someone's ancestry, which I think is why like oftentimes this tension around what it means for us to actually have a conversation around colorism, texturism, featurism, et cetera. I think sometimes the terms like mix just become a catch-all for like what is actually underneath that broader kind of conversation. Because I think even in those kind of Costa distinctions, we see a distinction made between a darker skinned person and a lighter skinned person, even with the same parentage. Mm. I also want to think about, well, I know I when talking about Jamaica, I bought a Mississippi, mm-hmm. but I'm wondering how accurate that is to map onto Jamaica because mm-hmm. I know like Brazil in particular has a really particular project of yeah. trying to make everybody look achieve that mixed look that you're talking yeah. about. Whereas in Jamaica, I wonder if it's more about the harmonious myth of these different races living alongside each other mm-hmm. and maybe not necessarily mixing, although there is mm-hmm. that in Jamaica. Lots of people have mixed ancestry mm-hmm. and parentage. But I know that's something that you could um, mention in the comments. Yes. If you want to. <laughs> yes. I mean every Yemen, every place every place has their has their particular flavors of anti-blackness and genealogical terror right that they're working through but i do think it is something that we will continue to see and are seeing in a lot of different spaces i mean we we both watched the invitation Uh (laughs) recently (laughs) i was gonna say no we didn't but i just that's because i don't want to think about watching it it's not good but it really could have been which is i think the failure of the film in a lot of ways but it is another kind of example of a film that is trying and failing to think about what it means for black people to confront genealogical terror in terms of their white ancestors 
this is something that is also referenced in like pretty much every slave narrative that has been written. They're almost always an acknowledgement. I mean, Frederick Douglass talks in the beginning of his slave narrative about how he doesn't know who his father is and how he only kind of barely knows who his mother is too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is all built into what slavery actually means for people in terms of these questions of kinship and family ties. He says genealogical trees do not flourish among slaves. And I think that is still true in many ways. Harriet Jacobs talks about what tangled skins are the genealogies of slavery. And she says S-K-E-I-N-S, which is something I always have to like go back and remember because I think that term is more about like a weaving as opposed to Mm. like a a flesh skin, which I think is maybe a little bit more complex than what it might sound like. And other fictional or non-fictional texts that we wanted to point towards about Black people reckoning with their white ancestry is Corridor by Gail Jones. Very heavy book. The premise is that this woman's father and great-grandmother both share the same father who was a white slave owner called Corridor. He's Portuguese mm-hmm. and he raped their great-grandmother and then raped her her daughter Mm -hmm. so within their dna within their bloodline they carry this trauma but the only way that they can remember the wrongs that were committed against them is if they continue to have generations and pass the story along Mm -hmm. the main character however cannot commit to this because due to domestic abuse Either her womb is damaged or it's taken yeah. out. She has like infertility yeah. as a result. Yeah. She's um infertile. And so Corridor reckons with that mm-hmm. level of violence. And then there's also Kindred by Octavia Butler, where black woman named Dana is pulled back in time to save her treacherous white ancestor named Rufus from dying. And she has to do that because if Rufus dies before he has Dana's great, 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 how many great grandmother, then Dana's entire bloodline and family are threatened. So mm-hmm. she has to go back and save this slave owner begrudgingly in order to secure her own future. Mm. Yeah. And unlike Mr. Gates, I appreciate that Butler actually actively names the rape that happens within the story in order mm-hmm. for Dana to exist. Yeah. Later on down the line. I mean, I think it also does something to our kind of contemporary approach to Afrofuturism as well, because I think that the idea that her future is secured by violence, right, that she has to save him so that he can violate so that all subsequent generations can occur i think it really does put the question of black futurity up for debate right like what is Mm. futurity under those circumstances if it requires this kind of upholding of that violent order especially because i mean in the the main character in kindred is also her partner is is a white man and so there's also this kind of tension with that too that comes through in the story as well and then the film we were referencing earlier the invitation which came out in 2022 is about a black girl raised in the u.s who later who after her mother's death does a dna ancestry test and finds that she has a number of white relatives in the uk who are very wealthy and she's tied to them by virtue of her great-grandfather who was a black servant 
on the estate who had a child with one of the rich white women in the home and had to, after the baby was born, had to take the baby and flee to the U.S. And so as a result, subsequent generations did not know themselves to be Black British, but they were originally Black British people. And it's they don't actually ever explain beyond that. Like, you know, like how the family got to the UK, for example, is never really explained, right? Because like, they're cowards. Yeah. Um, and in general, I think we both were very disappointed with the film in terms of the extent to which what it could have actually done, both in terms of thinking about Blackness and genealogical horror, which I think is actually a very valuable ground for storytelling and also the what they could have done too. I mean, to your point about the cowardice of not having a longer arc is also the, what it could have done for a conversation around diaspora as well, right? That this girl is growing up in the US, but it's actually the product of several violent migrations, right, that have to occur in order for her family to just constantly have to renegotiate space, right, because mm-hmm. of the way that anti-Blackness is shaping their lives. And the movie is also cowardly because it doesn't really make a lot of space for anger towards the white family until the end, which in my opinion is a little late and feels more tied to their more, yes, supernatural qualities <sighs> than the tied. Yeah, right? <laughs> it's tied more to the kind of like evil vampire plot than it is to the kind of white evil plot. And I kind of feel like she very easily could have come to that estate in a rage and that would have been valid and I think it's very interesting to me the extent to which that isn't acknowledged although there's perhaps something to be said again about the seduction plot that takes place there I mean I think it's another way to think about how violence can occur without the overt gesture of physical aggression because I think that also was an important part that we don't talk about enough is the role that hair also plays in the violent history of of how black people have been handled and so yeah I think I think the movie really could have done a lot more um and I'm always a fan of vampires and race discourse because I think that vampire films and media oftentimes very randomly or generally just are always connected to race, which I think maybe is not so random when you think about the role race plays in our ideas around death um, in many cases. But Slavery yeah. itself is very vampiric. So. Yeah. Um, and so I think when you think about histories of extraction, when you think about death and the living dead, right? I mean, we talk about this in terms of the history of the term like zombie or like zombie right in that diasporic tradition of the zombie but i think the same is is true in some ways for the vampire in terms of its capacity to help us think about parasitic relation i think all the kind of texts that we brought up think about that and when we were talking about corregidora i it reminded me a little bit also of how genealogy is is made up in their eyes are watching god by zora neale hurston which we don't have the kind of direct engagement with the figure of the white ancestor, but there is an understanding that Jeannie, that Janie is the direct product of two sexual assaults, right? That her, her grandmother was assaulted on the plantation and fled with her mother and her mother was assaulted and fled while Janie was shortly after Janie was born. And so she's raised by her grandmother as a direct result. And part of what creates the context for that story really is Janie attempting to figure out what relations are possible for her in the wake of that right that 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 is the template that has been laid out for her and that's part of why her grandmother is so anxious to have her married right and secured in in a relation because she understands what black women are exposed to but i think Janie ultimately 
charts her own path. But I think violence ultimately is informing, you know, what that looks like for her. Okay. We've reached the end of the episode in terms of time. Yes. Is there anything that you want to say to wrap things up? Um, Please. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, you can go first. Uh, I said quickly, please, because I'm the one who has to edit. No, I said you can go first. Oh, I can go like, first? I just okay. finished, yeah, I just finished talking, so, like... Oh, okay, okay, okay. I think I said all I had to say. The only thing left is that this has been a very heavy episode. Mm-hmm. It can be quite emotional. Thank you for listening all the way through. Even though we talked about people being serious or unserious when it comes to discussing... Mm-hmm. violence in slavery you know I still don't want to talk about the rape of my ancestors of my family of my friends and how if it wasn't for that sexual violence we wouldn't exist so yeah I think it leads to the existential terror that we were talking about at the beginning of the episode so yeah, yeah. leaves my heart heavy yeah I mean I think if nothing else I think it should invite us to think differently about what the relationship is between ourselves and our ancestors and to think in more robust ways about what a real solidarity with the enslaved actually requires of us. Um, And I think sometimes I, I know at a certain point I had to sit with myself and acknowledge, I mean, I think we oftentimes talk about our ancestors in these very kind of romantic ways where we're like, oh, my ancestors are helping me, right? Obviously that is true, right? In many cases, but I also think I also think we need to leave space for the fact that there are that there may be ancestors who who are tied to us against their will. Um, Right. And that is also as true as those who see. I mean, I think we tend to do the whole like, you know, I'm my ancestors greatest dream. Right. But I think I think it's actually more complicated than that. And I think there are ways in which we are we are also not their dreams, right? That there's much of what they may have wanted for themselves that did not come to fruition. Their freedom being one of those things. And so I think that perhaps this is an opportunity for us to think maybe less about what our ancestors can do for us (laughs) and what we might be able to do for them in terms of the political stances we take with regard to these questions and with regard to the ongoing move towards genealogy. I think we need to take a firm stance against these ancestry tests and the way that they are quite literally feeding into the carceral system. Um, Mm. I think we have to like actually like really think about what that means for us to be more protective about our histories um, in particular kinds of ways. Because, I mean, I think there's just a lot of levels to it. I mean, we didn't even get into a whole Henrietta Lacks thing, but, like, there's also that, Ooh, right? Yeah. I mean, there's there's all these, like, different layers to that conversation in terms of what extraction has meant for us genealogically. But, yeah, I think, if nothing else, I think it really does call us to really put some teeth behind that question of solidarity and to kind of temper with what I think the category of descendant of slaves has generally meant in terms of how we related to our past. Because I also feel like I've been seeing some things on TikTok that that have raised an eyebrow, that have raised an eyebrow for me in terms of the way that I think a lot of people use the kind of prefix of descendant to figure themselves as above their ancestors in particular kinds of ways. And 
I think it's unearned (laughs) in many ways. And I think that there is a difference between being free and being freed. And I think we would do well to understand that distinction. Remember that. Yeah, I think we do well to understand that distinction. Thank you for that. We are signing off. Thank you for listening. To continue this conversation, check out our reading list for this episode on our link tree, or you'll find all the resources we read to shape this discussion. If you enjoy our work, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want to hear your thoughts and questions about this episode. Please tweet us or DM us on Instagram and Twitter at at LoseYourSister. You can also send us an email at LoseYourSister at gmail.com. We hope you'll be back for our next episode next month. Bye. Bye.